You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. It symbolized the boldest image yet, from the governor to the House Speaker, Senate President to Oahu's mayor and city council chair and more, all signing onto a document standing united about our environment and the recent developments with leaks at the military's Red Hill underground fuel tanks. Here's Governor Josh Green acknowledging that while lawmakers have disagreed on many issues this session, on this point, they are perfectly clear, perfectly in unison. They agree on this. In February, I did go to the Pentagon and spoke with the leadership there. So that includes the leadership of the Navy at the top levels. Just to share that we absolutely have to have full resolution, exactly what we expressed today in this document. So there just can't be any question about this. In fact, when you see the leadership from the House, the leadership from the Senate, the leadership from the city and county, leadership from the executive branch, it says more than just we're addressing water here today. We're addressing our relationship with the Navy and the military, and that's important because this relationship goes way back and it goes also into the future. There are large questions that will emerge, whether it's the leases that we have to deal with in the coming years by 2029, and most importantly, the water. And so when you have this kind of solidarity, I think it's meant to send the message that we're totally serious about this circumstance so that we can move forward. And House Speaker Scott Psyche underscored what needs to happen next. We recognize that we are stronger together. The significance of the joint state and city statement we are signing today is that when one community speaks with one voice, our voice is powerful and it cannot be ignored. Our group is called the Red Hill Vai, the Water Alliance Initiative. Our next step is to work together to create a blueprint on what we want to see happen after the defueling of the Red Hill bulk fuel storage facility and how to address contaminants that are already in the ground and in the water. Over the next three to four months, the parties that have signed on to this unified statement will meet to develop a blueprint to help us reach our shared goal of clean water for the future. Some of the workshops will be designed for public input so that we can include Manao from communities across the state. The plan will serve both as a blueprint and a living document on what is required to remediate the land and the water around Red Hill to ensure clean and pure water for the future. We also want to include the congressional delegation to ensure that we are on the same page. We seek a holistic, proactive approach in calling for better outcomes for the people of Hawaii. The call for clean, pure water is urgent, and we appreciate the community's support. And Honolulu City Council Chairman Tommy Waters put it plainly. Without clean drinking water, there is no life. Ola Ikawai, we say that all the time, but think about it. It really means without clean drinking water, we cannot survive. We cannot build affordable housing. We can't feed our children. You can't import water from the mainland on Matson ships, right? We have a limited supply. We're here together. And how often do you see this, right? All these leaders together. DLNR, Board of Water Supply, House, Senate, saying, Navy, clean up your mess and do it right. And following that uh, late afternoon joint news conference at the state capitol, the Joint Task Force Red Hill issued this statement saying that ensuring clean water is critical to the Department of Defense and that they remain absolutely committed to safely and expeditiously defueling the Red Hill bulk fuel storage facility. We have asked to talk to Admiral John Wade, head of the Joint Task Force. We hope to hear back soon. One of the city's biggest complaints has to do with parking in residential neighborhoods. To try and ease the pain, back in 2017, three Hawaii lawmakers introduced a pilot program called a Restricted Parking Zone, RPZ, in three areas in Kalihi. The program aimed to ensure parking for area residents, to support safer streets, and to reduce crime by requiring permits for street parking. 
Councilmember Tyler DeSantos Tam represents Kalihi. He introduced Bill 20 earlier this year, which intends to make the pilot program permanent and to expand it. The conversations Russell Subiono spoke with Tam following a community meeting in Kalihi last night. What kind of feedback did you get from the community on the bill last night? Well, for the people that live in an existing RPZ zone, they are excited to see the program being made permanent. One change that's already happening in the existing RPZ zones is they are removing the one-hour grace period, which made enforcement really difficult. Under the old system, if you had a car that was parked there but didn't have the placard, they had a one-hour grace period, so the police would come and chalk the tires. But if the police didn't come back for hours you know, thereafter, it was very difficult to actually tag a violator. So now, without the grace period, the question for the police is, do they have a tag or not? And if they don't have a tag and there's no other kind of reasonable explanation as to why they're there, they can get cited immediately. That was one part. There were several neighbors from streets adjacent to the existing RPZ zones that wanted to join. And so under Bill 20, there's now a framework for the city to be able to expand an existing RPZ zone to include neighboring streets if it's warranted. And so those neighbors were very excited about the program. Some other feedback that we got is under Bill 20, we're setting prices for how much one of these annual permits is going to cost. And in Bill 20, as it's currently drafted, the first car would be $80 a year. That comes out to a couple bucks a month. But you know, for some of the residents, especially in Kalihi, they thought that that was a little steep. And so we went through a little bit of an exercise during the town hall where we had people kind of raise their hands and you know, we came to a point where we said, okay, well, maybe 50 or $60 is a little bit more reasonable for a first car. We asked how many people might need, you know, three on-street parking stalls, that is three cars that don't fit in their driveway or their garage. And not a single person who attended the meeting put their hand up. So they felt that, well, you know, there's really not a huge need for maybe three or four parking placards for street parking. So maybe those go up to, to a higher price level. Because if you're really, you know, clogging our streets with additional a third or fourth car that doesn't fit in your driveway, maybe it's okay to charge them a much higher price. But for, you know, somebody that just, you know, maybe the grandkids came home to live with them and they they do need one street parking stall, uh, the $80 seemed a little high to them. The fact that there is a fee at all, did that get any pushback? It seems like just from a... It did. Yeah, just from an outsider's point of view, it seems like, why do I have to pay to park on my own street? Yeah, there was, there was some feedback about that. You know, there was a homeowner who said, well, 20 years ago, this wasn't an issue. Why do I have to pay to park, you know, out on the street? You know, she said, oh, all these, all these renters moved in. They subdivided the house, et cetera, et cetera. And she said, you know, you should go after them first. And I said, okay, well, we can do that simultaneously. You know, we can have DPP investigate if there is an illegal rental down the street. But it still doesn't solve the fact that all throughout the neighborhood, families have grown cost of housing's gone up. There's more people living, especially in a, a working-class community yeah. like Kalihi. And so even if we were to go after every illegal subdivided home, which, which has you know more than five unrelated people, there's still going to be a parking issue in some of these communities. Now, the flip side to this is, you know, without an RPZ zone, because a neighborhood could choose not to participate and pay, you're going to have parking issues. And you're not going to have street parking, period. And so the, the trade-off is, you know, do we have a program that you have to pay a little bit into, but you are effectively going to have parking somewhere near your house. It's not going to be in front of your house necessarily, but somewhere on the street, somewhere in a reasonably close location. Or do you continue to just duke it out with your neighbors and everybody else there in sort of an uncontrolled way? And I think for most people, they say, okay, well, it's, it's worth paying a few bucks a month not have to worry about it. I don't know if you got the, uh, the PowerPoint presentation. If you didn't, I'm happy to send it. And in the PowerPoint, there was a study that was done for, I think, the Wilson Track neighborhood that showed that in Wilson Track, there's about 227 on-street parking stalls. And before the RPZ program took place, at any given time, there was a very, very low number. Less than 10% of the stalls on the street were available at any given time. And after the RPZ program, that went up to about a quarter of the stalls at any given time. And so, you know, people were able to find parking afterwards. As part of the study, they also looked at all the cars that were parked and, you know, ran their plates and compared where the car was registered to. And they found that before the RPZ program, it was about 
40% of people from outside of that neighborhood were parked there. But after the RBZ program, it was down to, I think, 12 out of the 227, which is a very small percentage of people who were just visiting. And so it dramatically changed, you know, who was actually parking in the neighborhood and also increased the amount of available stalls at any given time. I've been renting the last handful of years, and the place where I live now is the first time that it has a dedicated parking area. And so uh, I've been I've been parking on the street. Right? Yeah, yeah. So I've been parking on the street for you know the last handful of years. So I I yeah I know firsthand what it's like to have to you know fight for parking. And so it seems like this is a, a you know it's been well received by the communities that it's been implemented in money aside, has there been any other opposition to the program? You know, I wouldn't say that there's been substantial opposition, but I'll make a few observations. One is that this is not perfect for every neighborhood, and we do not expect to have every single neighborhood on this island have a, a parking program like this. But for neighborhoods where there's maybe an attraction or uh, some sort of outside force that that comes in and takes all their parking, maybe a large employer in the neighborhood, or in the case of a neighborhood like Lanikai, of course, there's tourists and visitors who just flood the neighborhood with parking. You know, for neighborhoods like that, a solution like an RPZ might really solve a lot of their problems. And so again, it's not perfect for everyone, but for certain neighborhoods, this really is a wonderful solution. The other observation is, even with an RPZ program, people still need to treat their neighbors in a neighborly way. I mean, a lot of the complaints that come into my office, especially from the kind of older neighborhoods that I represent, where the streets are narrow and we didn't have 10 cars in a house 60 years ago when they laid out the streets, people putting a cone or a boulder or a cinder block on the unimproved sidewalk to save parking or prevent people from parking. Even with the RPZ program, people still need to treat each other well and be, you know, reasonable. A lot of local people and I've got family members who do this too. They often don't use their garage for their cars. They, they use it to store other things in the, in the home. Right. And thus, they end up contributing to the street parking issue. And so, you know, that's part of it as well. People should be parking on their own property if they're able to do so. You know, people still need to be thoughtful, be courteous to the extent possible, not contribute to adding to the parking pressures in your neighborhood. And you mentioned a study earlier, and and you talked about parking and and traffic stats. What about crime? I know some of the original intent of this program was to also reduce crime. Are there figures on how the program has impacted crime in these neighborhoods as well? You know, I don't have those figures, but I'm sure the Kalihi Community Police Division over the Kalihi Police Station would either have raw data or just anecdotal data. They were at the meeting yesterday they've observed that it does reduce crime and sort of the the nuisances that come along with a lot of strange cars in the neighborhood. With the RPZ program, you know, if you don't have a tag and there's a mysterious car parked there or has been sitting there for, you know, an hour or so, and you call the police, that gives them a reason to talk to that vehicle. Whereas, you know, if there's not really probable cause in a non-RPZ zone, it's a little bit hard for police to say, you know, you got to move because it's, it's the right to, to sort of sit there and park. But in an RPZ zone, if you don't have the tag, not your right to sit there and park during the restricted hours. Judging by the feedback that you got from the community last night, I know Bill 20, I think, has gone through two readings. Do you feel yep. like the bill will pass and this will become a permanent program in these areas? Yeah, I anticipate that it'll pass out. Now, we do have one more committee hearing on May 23rd. And at that meeting, we anticipate incorporating some of the suggestions that neighbors made. And that includes things like addressing the fee. I do anticipate that at the June 7th full council meeting that this bill will pass out. Shortly thereafter, hopefully the mayor signs it, and then they'll develop some administrative rules. And then other neighborhoods can start implementing this beyond the three existing zones in Kalihi. That was Honolulu uh, Council Member Tyler DeSantos Tam talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about Bill 20, which aims to make the residential parking zone program in Kalihi permanent and to expand it to other neighborhoods.
think your electric bills have been high? Well, check out the city's power bills. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Kirsten Downey on the line today. Good morning. Aloha, Catherine. Yeah, so I love the headline, Electricity Rate Shocks. <laughs> it's the City <laughs> Hall, too. It's City Hall. That's right. That's right. I think we've all been watching our uh, electricity bills with shock and horror month by month. <laughs> well, it turns out the city has two. Um, and uh, I was at a, you know, we've been watching this budget carefully um, for the last few months. Um, we all, you know, the, these, uh, these big property assessments. Uh, tax assessments came through, um, and people have been sort of in shock with that. And thinking about what it means, there's been a lot of proposals to find ways to cut property taxes. But the problem is the city keeps finding new expenses that it really has to face and can't get around in a changing environment. Um, and uh, at a recent budget meeting, there was a, several of the committees were discussing what they were uh, Several agencies were asking what they could do to transfer money to cover their high electricity bills. And it was enough of a pattern that I asked the city to search their documents. And they found that, in fact, that electricity, the city's electricity bill has, is up $20 million this year over last year. Wow. I mean, that's, that's a big nut to crack. That is a huge amount, especially when you put it in context to the fact that the tax relief that the mayor has has offered is $300 tax credit for each property owner um, that qualifies for the program, and that equals about $45 million in tax relief. Well, the the utility bills are almost half that alone. Yeah, and if, you know, the electricity prices are have risen 28%, you know, which is what your story says, I mean, the money's got to come from somewhere, so that means, what, cutting city services? Well, that's unfortunately what we're already seeing. Um, the Department of Parks and Recreation had to ask the city council for uh, permission to move money from one budget to another. Um, they're able to cover the 24% hike in electricity costs, and they're doing it by cutting grounds maintenance. Well, you know, that's not going to be good. <laughs> I mean, we love our parks, but, you know, well, if that... they, you know, just are you know, left to deteriorate, well, this is a real challenge. You know, we've made a commitment as a society here to convert to clean energy. And it's also happening at a time that global oil prices have spiked. And it's leaving both Hawaii's residents and its institutions um, in the bind of seeing the prices rise and sort of the bill is due for what we're we're paying for. Now, for the city, it's a particular problem. They have more than 90 buildings spread out around the island. And a lot of them think of them, you know, the Honolulu Hale, the Fosse Building, um, Blaisdale Arena. These are big, cavernous buildings built a long time ago that need to be updated to be made more energy efficient. So the city is working hard to, to make all these updates and to bring these costs down. But it is still a huge hit. So, the, for example, the operating budget for the rail as it comes in is expected to be a new, a new fee that we're going to be paying of about $100 million a year. Well, our electricity bill is also nearly $100 million a year. In fact, it rose from $68 million last year to $87 million this year. So I think either they're going to have to budget more carefully for these expenses, they're going to have to uh, give less relief than the council members and the mayor would like to give, um, or services will have to be cut. Yeah, we'll hate to see the parks all overgrown and, you know, the the, uh, the swing sets just, you know, deteriorated. But, yeah, hopefully uh, we find a solution. But thanks so much, Kirsten. Thank you so much for having me. That was reporter Kirsten Downey with today's Reality Check. Uh, check out her story. Visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, specializing in residential and commercial building projects. Learn more about services at greenbuildinghawaii.com. Today on The Daily, 
A jury in Manhattan has found former President Donald Trump legally liable for sexually abusing and defaming the writer E. Jean Carroll. We tell the story of how a nearly 30-year-old allegation reached this moment. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. Our nurses, our future. That's the theme of National Nurses Week 2023. Today, we get to know the dean of the University of Hawaii's nursing school, Clementina Saria Ulip. She's a graduate of the department she now leads, a school that is turning away qualified applicants in a very competitive field. She also happens to be Filipino, one of the very few executives in a field of nursing students that is often 40% Filipino. On the average, I would say we have about 600 applicants for a position or slot of 48. Can you imagine that? Wow. It's tremendous. So we admit about 6 to 12% of applicants and highly qualified. Sometimes the average GPA is like 3.89, and we turn down someone with a 3.6 or 3.68. The last time we had a boyfriend and a girlfriend, and the girlfriend had a 3.7, I think, and he had 3.68. Wow. So he didn't make it. He even went to the legislature mm-hmm. to have one of the legislator advocate for him. And so the dean said it was Mary at the time and said, I'm sorry, I don't make those decisions, but there are criteria for application uh, for criteria that, you know, the student must meet. The person, the student actually met all the criteria. We just didn't have enough slots. So the slot is limited by two factors. One is the nursing faculty shortage, but more seriously, it's the clinical placement, meaning the hands-on site is limited. We have a lot of nursing schools, right? And you have a limited place where they go and do their internship. Right, and it's Uh, competitive. Yeah, and so what happened is that we used to be able to send between 8 to 10 students pre-COVID, and then during COVID, we were not able to send any at all. And then now returning post-COVID, it's between three. Some places are only wanting three students per cohort going on a clinical unit, four in some places, six in some places, but maybe HPH has maybe one or two units right now that are accepting eight, but the majority is accepting between four to six. So basically we have to, you know, for a group of eight students, because we divide the 48 into, it used to be six groups of eight, it's now eight groups of six. If you're like three students only per unit, then you have to hire for a group of six students or eight students, two clinical faculty, so that makes it very expensive to offer the program. And you have to find an additional site, right, for the other group of students. So it's really heartbreaking to know that we're turning prospective nurses away. Yes, very much so. And so there's a threat of Arizona College of Nursing coming on board. And I've communicated with a lot of our nursing leaders there in the practice uh, setting and say, you know, you have very successful schools of nursing who have been producing nurses for uh, you all over the years, and why support someone new? Because there's some who actually supported the application of the Arizona College of Nursing, and their cost to complete the baccalaureate degree is almost double of what it would take. Us here in Manoa, it's like $56,000 for the three years 
to get a baccalaureate here, whereas it would be uh, over 90,000 through Arizona College of Nursing. We educate them to include, integrate in the curriculum our ways of living as a community, Native Hawaiian place of learning here in Manoa as part of our strategic goals, and also just, you know, how to provide care to the local community, which is not something that the faculty from outside the state would be able to or even be included in their curriculum. So ask them if you're willing to increase the ratio of faculty, number of students coming on your unit, we can increase our admission numbers, I said. And we actually included, I asked the other deans from Chaminade, from HPU, and we met with some of the leaders to say, we can increase our enrollment, and if you do that, we don't need the Arizona College of Nursing. So we are trying our best, but we're limited by those factors, Catherine. Well, because you have come up through the University of Hawaii program, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not sure what made you go into nursing, but it must be hard for you to see all these applicants and knowing that you can't take them all. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, I have emails from parents, from students who's been turned away. I mean, I feel really bad, and I'm really sorry you're qualified. It's just that we don't have enough slots for you in our program, so it's not you. It's just we don't have the capacity to admit as much as we would like to. Because, you know, it's ridiculous, really, because our criteria of admission is 3.0 and above, but actually we don't admit 3.0 because it's more like 3.8, 3.9 kind of GPA because, like, sometimes the first 40 students are 4.0, right, wow. you know, when you're looking at the applications. And then the direct entry in nursing program, we have 36 slots for that, and there were 500 applicants. And I would say 75% of them came from the mainland. They're very competitive. So, yeah, it breaks my heart to have to tell the students and their parents, I'm really sorry we can't accept you or your child because we just don't have enough clinical slots. You joined the School of Nursing, what, back in 1993? Right. That was 30 years ago. (laughs) And what got you into nursing? Actually, I was going to go into medicine, but my father sustained an industrial accident when I was in the senior year, and so I had to change course. Like, everybody had to go to work. My mom, from a housewife, she went to become a hotel maid. I started cleaning classrooms uh, at Farrington High School just to so that we could pay for the mortgage so we don't have to give up our house because my dad couldn't work anymore. So everybody went to work in our house. So I said to mom and dad, well, I think I'll go into nursing instead of medicine because, I mean, the training is so much longer, right? And so they, everyone said, okay, that might be better. But, you know, I have no regrets. I love being a nurse, and the opportunities in nursing is incredible. You can be a researcher. You can be a teacher. You can be an entrepreneur. You can also go into the insurance business. You can also be an expert witness during trials. There is so much opportunities and options in nursing that it's open wide and it's up to you to match your skills with the options provided. So I have no regret. I've enjoyed being a nurse and continue to do so. The fact that the School of Nursing is also named after another alum, what does that mean when you have worked Mm -hmm. in the trenches for all these years? And to see Nancy Atmosfera Mm -hmm. Walsh have a lasting impression also on the department there. Well, I think that if you think about Being a nurse, being in the trenches, being a staff nurse, I've actually gone from being a staff nurse to charge nurse, nurse manager, supervisor. I was an administrator at St. Francis West before I came here. And then, you know, going from a faculty all the way to the dean level, I never dreamed to be going up to this level. I always thought, you know, I'd come and teach and enjoy the opportunity and the experience, you know, because just 
producing nurses. It's like a tremendous opportunity and so gratifying. When you go to a doctor's office or like when I take my relatives or family for care, I mean, very often I run into a former student, you know. So it's really gratifying. But as a Filipina, I think it's the implication there is perhaps we've shattered the glass ceiling, as they say, because, you know, Usually, even with our students, we have a lot of students who graduate from our undergraduate program. Sometimes as much as 35 to 40 percent of our undergraduate are Filipinos. You know, there's a joke that if you're Filipino, you must be a nurse kind of thing. Joy, joke. Yes. You know, promote that. <laughs> yes. Promote that joke, right? Yeah. Well, in, in his movie, right, Easter Sunday, yeah. right, his sister said, well, being a nurse was not my dream. That was, you know, mom's dream. <laughs> Yeah, but like when it comes to the graduate programs, it's not at that level. It's more like maybe less than 5%. If you look at the number of our population of Filipinos, it's about 16%, right? If you look at the number of Filipinos who are faculty, period, it's like 3 to 5%. And in EM, executive management, it's like 1%, right? So um, there's a disparity yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Well, there was a time, you know, in Hawaii where we would see many young Filipino nurses come from the Philippines. They're either LPNs or mm-hmm. uh, CNAs. But what are we doing these days to help, you know, with the transition? Let's say if there are Filipinos that come over with yes. some kind of medical background. Right. So, like, I volunteer with some of the faculty from here, as well as Shamanad and HBU, a lot of Filipino faculty there volunteer to assist NAMI, Nurse Advocates and Mentors, Inc., led by B. Ramos Rasan as the president of the corporation to assist the foreign grads, RN foreign graduates, to obtain their RN licensure, right? So programs like that are available. And then I think because of the nursing shortage, they're beginning to recruit from there again. And so I also know some recruiters from the mainland going to the Philippines to recruit nurses there. And, you know, they're being very aggressive, and the new strategies to actually not only bring the nurse, but bring their whole family. They come as a package now to the United States, you know, like in California. They're doing that a lot. So they have actually asked us if we could help the nurses to shore up their skills, you know, by having them practice through our simulation lab, for example. So those are some of the things we're doing, helping them to obtain their license and then also providing additional practice or clinical time so that they're able to pass the test, right? We actually do that in collaboration with UH Hilo for those students who are trying to get their license. When you compare, you know, the contract nurses, $100 to $200 an hour, right? And... They're only there for a time, for three months. It's very expensive. There's no longevity, Mm -hmm. so the quality of care is not consistent. There's also the resentment of our local nurses who are making probably between 50-something to $70 an hour. And they have these colleagues, the contract nurses, who are making between 100 to $200 an hour. All their living expenses are taken care of. They have transportation to and from work, right? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to swallow when you're a local nurse having to see that. When I was a nurse manager between 1988 to 1989, before I went to get my PhD, it was the same situation. I was hiring a whole new staff every three months from all over the world from Northeast, Southeast, Ireland, yes. England, remember that. Canada, yeah. right? Yeah. When I'm interviewing them on the phone, the first time when I was a nurse manager and we had that acute shortage and we were bringing all these flying nurses from all over the world, we would pick them up, drop them off, our contract nurses, and I would see a local nurse waiting by the bus stop, mm. right? Wow. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you mm-hmm. for sticking it out and raising the numbers in those administrative executive positions. Fun chatting with you and hopefully I get to meet you in person. Yeah, one of these days. Okay. Take All care. Right, take care. <laughs> thank Aloha. you. Bye-bye. 
That was Clementina Saria Ulip, Dean of the University of Hawaii Nursing School, and we salute our nurses as part of Nurses Week. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the law firm of Damon Key Leong Kupchak Hastert, celebrating its 60th year of serving the people and businesses of Hawaii. Learn more at hawaiilawyer.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we get an inside look at the future of farming jobs. We'll talk to the organizers of an ag tech project that puts smart agriculture systems into the hands of students. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, and we've got a strange and special call for you on this week's Manu Minute, thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Labor- uh, Laboratory of Ornithology. University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the wedge-tailed shearwater. Uwa'ukani, or wedge-tailed shearwaters, are one of the most abundant seabirds in Hawaii. They have a wingspan of about a meter, hook-shaped bills that help them catch their prey, and, as their English name describes, wedge-shaped tails. Both males and females can either be light or dark brown. The name Uwa'ukani means calling or moaning petrel, and you can often hear these calls if you're lucky enough to live near a colony during their spring and summer breeding season. Uwa'ukani are one of the aku birds that fisher people often use to find where the larger predatory fish like ahi and aku are in the ocean. Unlike most other seabirds, Uwa'ukani can often forage underwater by using their wings to propel themselves to depths of up to 200 feet in search of small fish and squid. The population size in Hawaii is estimated to be close to 300,000 birds, but most of them live either in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands or on offshore islets around the main Hawaiian islands, such as Manana and Mokumanu. Like their cousins, the Uwa'u, or Hawaiian petrel, Uwa'ukane lay just a single egg in burrows that they dig themselves in the dirt or sand. The parents take turn incubating the eggs for about two months in alternating shifts that last one to two weeks. Unlike their petrel cousins, though, that nest high up in the mountains, Uwa'ukane nest near the ocean. These ground-nesting habits make them easy prey for dogs, cats, and mongooses. So nowadays, most Uwa'ukani on the main Hawaiian Islands nest in protected areas such as Kaena Point and Black Point on Oahu and Kilauea Point on Kauai. We can help protect our Uwa'ukani by making sure that dogs and cats stay out of the breeding colonies and also by reducing bright outdoor lights that attract the juveniles when they leave the nest around the beginning of the Makahiki season in late fall. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about giving at friendsofhakalauforest.org.
The New York Times describes Lonnie Park as having the voice of an angel and the soul of a rock star. The Big Island resident is the author of Angel and Hannah, a novel in verse, which is tough to do. She's also a Nahoku Hanohano nominee for her instrumental album, Sweet Gold. But Park's newest venture is rooted in her study of agriculture. She's building an eco-friendly house, a dome specifically, to serve as an artist colony. It's a partnership with Dome Gaia, a company that uses what's called aircrete, or cement, water, and foam, to build cost-effective homes. The conversation Stephanie Hahn talked with Park about home and creativity. You know, I always loved nature, but I never really had an opportunity to live that kind of lifestyle. And when I got old enough, I went full force. I went to uh, Kauai Community College and got a degree in sustainable farming. And then I also went to UH Maui and I learned from organic farmers through their FAM mentorship program. And I really wanted to learn how to be more self-sustainable and to grow my own food for my family, especially after the pandemic. So it really kind of awakened this desire in me. So I went for it. And last year I purchased some uh, Aina over in on the Pahoa side of uh, the Big Island. And we've been growing a food forest ever since. And we have over 125 fruit trees and berries and herbs and plants growing right now. And it's really been one of the most nourishing and wonderful experiences of my life to Aloha Aina and garden with my daughters. So how did you come to this idea of the Gaia Dome as your future residence and also as the basis for the artist colony that you are now laying the foundation for? What really appealed to me about the Gaia Dome is that it was founded and created by another artist. So this artist, Hajar Gibran, is a direct descendant of Khalil Gibran, who is the timeless mystic poet and author of The Prophet. So for me, that was very appealing because he creates these beautiful, affordable kind of dwellings that can be used as homes, as artist retreats, and they've been building them all over the Big Island and all over the world, actually. And so I was looking for a kind of cost-effective alternative to regular housing, and I'm particularly drawn to round shapes. <laughs> I lived in, or I stayed in um, a Zulu rendezvous uh, for about a summer, and I returned to visit my friends there again um, in South Africa, and it was actually like one of the most wonderful places I've ever stayed in my life. It was small, but it was round, and the kind of acoustics and the energy inside that space was so beautiful, so I know I wanted to have a round space. What is the sensation of living in a round space versus, I don't know, a square rectangular one? Yeah, it was really interesting to stay in a round space because the acoustics, first of all, as a musician, they're fabulous. The acoustics of a round room are so wonderful to record in because of energy in the space circle. So there's no space for kind of energy to get stuck in corners. And so one thing that I realized when I was living in these round spaces was that the energy was always flowing really uh, nicely in them. So when there was somebody with bad energy within like the hut, they would eventually be pushed out or find their way to the door. So there was no space for energy to get stuck. So it's kind of like a feng shui thing. But for me, it felt like very holistic and soft and comforting, almost like a womb. It's a very, like, there's a very warm energy inside round spaces that feels different than in spaces with corners. <laughs> right. That's really interesting. It has been my dream to have my own Gaia Dome for years. So when this opportunity came to me, it just aligned beautifully. And I felt like I need to go for this while it's uh, the opportunities in my lap. <laughs> and I understand that they use a type of material they call aircrete of cement, yes. water and foam. And they compare it to a surfboard. So can you tell me a little bit about this material and the building process? So the amazing thing is that this poet and this artist, Hajar Gibran, is also the creator of this material called Aircrete, and it is a much more cost-effective alternative to uh, concrete, and it's very easy to build with. So they've been building with it for years now, and they've been creating these structures with it, and they kind of have this whole system, and now they have workshops all over the country, and um, they'll be doing one on my land, where people come from all over to help 
build these round dwellings and they learn how to build sustainably and affordably, it's kind of like a nice way to create your own sanctuary from scratch. Because the only ingredients you really need are aircrete and water <laughs> to create these dwelling so it's really interesting and for me as an artist I thought that I would really love to have a home that is created for artists and by artists and be like a community kind of effort I had lived in quite a number of different eco communities and while I liked the kind of ideal behind it in practical living terms it was difficult because <laughs> there were times when I needed my own space uh -huh. and time to create so this for me is a nice happy medium so we'll have our own home but one to three months out of the year we'll open our space to artists writers and musicians to come to create relax and rejuvenate on our land and also learn about uh, permaculture learn about korean natural farming and growing food forests and gardens and uh, stuff like that now how sturdy is this kind of home i mean if it's so light I'm just mm -hmm. imagining, I don't know, somebody gets annoyed one day and decides to kick the wall. What happens? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> once it's built, it's actually pretty sturdy and strong. They say it's like earthquake proof and it's like the same as concrete, basically. Like once you put the plaster over it, if you'd like to have your own dome gaia, then you can reach out to the dome gaia people. And there are two ways to go about it. You can either pay for it yourself if you have the funds and create it yourself, or you can enlist a whole community and team of people to build it for you. As long as you provide the land and the foundation, put down a deposit and do some basic steps. So I am doing a kind of Indiegogo to raise uh, awareness and funds to help uh, with that initial part for the foundation, for the permits, and all of those things in order to prepare the land. And then people can sign up to come do these workshops on your land, and within 10 days, they actually build the structure. So it's really incredible, and they'll build the actual shell of the house, you're responsible for finishing it up and making it really pretty and painting it and putting the doors on, but they do the, the main part within 10 days, and uh, within 10 days, you have like a sustainable little dome home. <laughs> wow, incredible. So is this a little bit like Habitat for Humanity, do you, or do you know these people who are coming to build your house? Yeah, so it is very much like Habitat for Humanity, but I would say it's more grassroots, more organic. Like, And so people who are earth builders, people who like to build with natural materials or people who like to live sustainably in unique kind of structures uh, are drawn to this. So they come from all over. They come from Hawaii, but they also come from all over the world. And they take part in these workshops partly so that they have the experience and that way they can build their own. So there's Gaia domes in Indonesia, Mexico, Costa Rica. People are using them as artist retreats, as homes. You are really somebody who thrives, obviously, on performance and expression. So how mm -hmm. do you link this to the concept of building a home? What does home mean to you in terms of creativity? Home really means having a safe, sacred space where I can be free to relax and create and be myself. And for me, I've always been the most creative in spaces where I feel comfortable and where I feel nurtured and safe. So I've actually gotten the most creative work done in my life when I've applied to various artist residencies around the world and had time to be in my own beautiful space in nature. So that's kind of what I want to do here, and that is what I'm trying to create. Uh, in my experience, I found is that living under landlords here in Hawaii as a single mother, Asian American mother, I've unfortunately experienced a lot of racism. I've experienced a lot of predatory landlords and just unpono landlords. And for me, food sovereignty and land sovereignty were really key to being able to have a space that my daughters and I could feel safe and at home. So we purchased the land partly with a community fundraiser and also with the proceeds of my last book, Angel and Hana. This has been an artist-led project from the beginning by artists and for artists, and I wanted to continue to be a space like that. And since artist residencies and retreats have been so integral to my own growth and development as a creative, I want to continue to give back and do that for other artists and create a space like that here in Hawaii and especially for local artists because I feel like local artists are more used to living in nature, living off-grid, so they understand it. And there's also a philosophy of aloha 
aina that I definitely want to perpetuate, taking care of the land. So it's not just like that you take, 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 but it's a circle. You give back. So all the artists who are invited to stay on the land are also asked to give back to the land by either planting or gardening and leaving some sort of art on the land to inspire future artists, like either a painting or a song or something that can stay as a record of their time there and inspire future artists that will also come. Housing is such an important issue here in Hawaii, so do you see this as potentially a solution? Yeah, I think that this can definitely be an interesting and unique solution and a different way to go about things. And it's wonderful because it brings together a lot of innovative and creative people working together in community to create affordable housing. And so that we're not so dependent upon, uh, you know, the system or bigger contractors and people who don't have like hundreds of thousands of dollars can still create beautiful homes on, on their land. So... Um, I'm hoping that people who are involved in this project will then learn from it and it will inspire them to create their own beautiful dwellings, whether they are dome gayas or just whatever they want to do on their land. But it is possible, even without a lot of money, if there's a lot of heart and community effort and aloha, anything is possible. So. Great. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Lonnie. Oh, thank you. I'm so grateful. It's always a pleasure and an honor to talk to you, Steph. Yeah, aloha. Aloha. That was the multi-talented Lonnie Park talking with HBR Stephanie Hahn about dome housing, sustainability, and creativity. We have to go now, but up tomorrow, we take a look at the point-in-time count for Oahu's homeless. We get the latest numbers. Got a homeless story to share? Call our Talkback line, 808-792-8217, or you can email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can find all our shows archived online by uh, searching for The Conversation Podcast on Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.